Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 40 of season two of This Osteopathic Life. That means that today we equal the number of solo episodes that we had in season one, and we are still six weeks out from the conclusion of season two. That's pretty exciting. And that also notes we have, I think we're coming up on 15, 14 or 15 of the conversations episodes. We had a bonus episode in there. And so it's very exciting. We're nearing the 100 episode mark. I thank you all for joining me throughout these two seasons, whether it's been for one episode, for all of them, perhaps you had an episode that you went back to and followed up on, share that with me. Send me a message at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at thisosteopathiclife and let me know which episodes have spoken to you and perhaps which concepts you'd like to hear more about. Today, I'd like to explore a concept that comes up a lot an analogy, actually, if you will, and some resistance I have had to it and the ways I've explored it in recent months and really in recent weeks in more depth as a means of understanding myself and understanding the possibility that exists for both myself and for others. So you may have heard the concept that you can kick one ball a hundred times or a hundred balls one time. And if you visualize that, and again, anytime we visualize, if you're driving or walking and need to keep actual visual on the world around you, do that. But we can still go with our mind's eye, even with our eyes open to that concept. And what you'll notice is, right, that one ball will go far. A hundred kicks to one ball will take that forward. And that has great merit. There are appropriate times and spaces and implementations for that. And for some... That's always the way. And for me, that has always felt off. It hasn't felt aligned with the way in which I view things. And certainly, if I view that as the right way, or the only way, or the best way, or the predominant way, or the ideal way, that would make it seem like if I'm not doing that, I am failing I'm not doing it right. I'm missing out. I'm not serving the purpose or the passion or the project appropriately. And we'll come back to this. But what I've noticed is I've had a lot of hesitancy around there being a way in general. I've spoken with you many times in past episodes about my sense of discontent and mismatch in medicine early on in my internship year when it seemed as though I was being asked and tasked to follow ways, right? Prescribed ways, 
algorithmic ways, cookbook ways of engaging with patients. And I will fully admit in that space and in what we might even look at as naivete at that stage of medicine, it's appropriate, right, to have algorithms and frameworks and specific ways of doing things as you're learning, just like as in music, where we begin with scales and learning to read music and having tape on the fingerboard to guide us very specifically to where our hands should be placed. And over time, with learning and progress, we can release some of those and find more freedom in it. And so I don't discount the algorithmic method as a teaching tool, as a foundational platform. And I don't discount that physicians at all stages have the latitude to be creative and are necessarily creative, right? To be able to effectively treat the patient in front of them with all of their uniqueness and the differences that occur moment to moment, particularly in this year, right? If ever it's being illustrated that physicians are called to be creative and the way they support the health of their patients, 2020 is it, right? We no longer see patients in person. We don't have this type of equipment. You know, different specialists have been called to the front lines and have gone back to kind of those core principles of medicine and taking with them, of course, all their specialty training, but putting on the hat that was necessary in the moment. Other physicians have been furloughed and clinics have been closed and surgery lines have been stopped. And that call to serve health has emerged in non-clinical ways. And so absolutely, there's a lot of room for creativity. And it still didn't sit well with me that there was a suggestion of there being one way to do something or that this textbook algorithm was going to match each and every patient that was in front of me. And I had an enormous amount of resistance to that. So much so that I was ready to depart from medicine entirely and move into the athletic training realm, which we could explore in greater depth. And when I moved into the specialty that seemed to fit better for me, again, no discrediting to a specialty and the match it had for others in that right time, but this was for me, right? That's the only experience I can speak entirely authentically from. When I moved into neuromusculoskeletal medicine, it did seem that there was a bit more room for interpretation. And interestingly, in medicine, there were some challenges around that, challenges around the way in which studies were executed because there were fewer algorithms. And there are ways of doing things. There are techniques, right? There are textbooks. There are steps. We have board exams. We follow things in a certain way. And, right, the power of the and, it's not a but, it's an and. There is always just the one patient. And so in that space, both adapting to what the society of medicine required to be legitimate, to be able to prove efficacy of treatment and find objectable measurements. Object, objective, that's fascinating. <laughs> we'll leave that Freudian slip in there. Objective measurements of impact and outcomes, right? Gathering data, having adequate numbers, having consistency, inter-rater reliability. And even then, in the training of residents and beautifully, one of the residents with whom I was training 
an interesting time lapse of when I completed my own program and then moved into a teaching role. There was this time frame where I shared both as a learner and then as a teacher, which to me are always interchanging. I was shown The Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. And around that same time, it was also The Gifts of Imperfection, right? Which has its 10-year anniversary now with Brene Brown. And if we take those two titles and we think about them in medicine, it's almost something we want to just hide away, right? Who wants insecurity and imperfection in medicine? No, thank you. But for me, it was a yes, please, because it explained, right, to me, when we did have disagreements or discrepancies or different interpretations of what we were feeling patient to patient with the perspectives we had, because in each and every moment, right, which each and every breath and heartbeat, there is a difference in what the patient is experiencing and what the physician is experiencing. And in that relationship between them, things are happening and evolving all the time. And in medical education, the student or the intern or the resident go into the room and gather a history and do an exam and come out and present. And there are times by the time the attending physician returns to the room, the story is different. And perhaps the patient discloses something different. They might have remembered, right? They might speak differently to the senior physician versus the junior resident or the medical student. And on the exam, well, yes, there are absolutely some clear and consistent static findings, right? If there's a direct injury, a flesh wound, if there's an area of infection, we can listen to, you know, bowel sounds and auscultate the heart and lungs. But in palpation, it's so fascinating because there's this ever-changing dynamic, right? How the tissues are moving, noticing how, as we see, right, the body keeps score. I can reference that book in the show notes. And pain manifesting as this energy in the body and how it's engaging with the neurons and what that's like in the tissues in fluid, right? Think about a body of water. And is it ever the same? Right? As it's moving, if we don't have stagnation, right? As a body of water is changing over, are you ever seeing that same droplet? And imagine, right, our body is this encasement of fluid. And so it's always moving. And so it's very common for there to be a shift in what is palpated. And that means what's under the hands. And when that's the way you are engaging, it can be very frustrating as a learner to know, right? I felt this when I did the assessment and I presented it, and now it's different. And it could be that the perception of the physician leading you is different. It can be that things have just changed. It can be that both exist, right? Both the findings that you have and how they appeared to you and what was prevalent for you was different for the practitioner. And I don't discredit my own specialty in this way. And absolutely, there are ways to standardize and normalize and gauge proficiency. And there is room for there to be more than one way. And very early on, in the earliest episodes I shared with you, one of my mentors, Dr. Richard Huff, who passed away right around the time of the launch of this podcast, and his classmate, Dr. James Jealous, with whom I learned in various courses over the last decade. 
on the surface, from an observational perspective, treated very differently. When you saw what they were doing mechanically and visibly and tactilely with their patients, were night and day. Right? One very direct, one very indirect, one with a lot of movement, you know, gross motion with the patient, one with very little. Right? The patient was often simply lying down and hands or on, and there was listening, but they were treating the same, right? So while their ways were different, the ultimate objective was the same. They were treating to the health and they were listening to the patient and they were willing to hear what was happening and they made adjustments as were necessary. And they were nudging, again, with different levels of energy and intention and directness, the body back toward its own wisdom, back into the light, back into the current, back into the flow, out of stagnation. And it was so fascinating to me that they were presented in such dichotomous ways and were so unified. And I was first, I think, amused. And then I was perhaps confused And since then, I've truly been encouraged and elated even. Because what I saw was, and if you can imagine, it's kind of like a movie when things click into place, right? And then they scan back and you see all the things that happened in the movie that are, of course, right? Oh, it's always been this way, right? I just thought there was this way of doing it and that way of doing it. And one was superior to the other, but they couldn't coexist or they were actually not doing the same thing. But, ooh, and, or we could do but, we could choose. When we are treating to, with, for, through, of, within, among, between, because of health, there are many ways. And in fact, there is only the way that you proceed in each and every moment. And that is okay. And it is actually welcome. And it is beautiful and it is necessary. And that was the greatest gift of my clinical experience. To see those two and to know those seeds were planted in the same space. These were classmates who learned and engaged together in their origins and then took wildly different paths into medicine and worked in different spaces, both geographically and specialty-wise, And did, like I said, on the surface, practice night and day differently. And we're still treating to the health. And we're not beholden to a way. They were free to develop their way. And it wasn't even really their way. And this is the part that's been more liberating to me in recent, let's say, months. Is that my hesitancy has been that I didn't even necessarily want there to be my way. I just wanted to know that there wasn't one single way, that there wasn't one right answer, that there was simply the honoring of the health and the space to explore and the permission to be fully yourself and in so doing, welcome the patient to be their full self, including the health which we can never separate ourselves from, and whatever aspect of dis-ease 
was present and not requesting or requiring any change. And so in that space of letting go of the knowing and the algorithm and this prescribed method of doing, there was this freedom, there was a fullness, there was infinite possibility, there was grace, there was ease, not in anything changing and not in the removal of dis-ease necessarily, but there was ease within it, right? The health didn't need the disease to go away. The health said, here I am, I'm ever present. And disease is part of this model. And sometimes it's going to be overwhelming. Sometimes it will even be death. And the health is still there because health is life. And death is part of life. It is not separate from it. And pain can be part of life. And the suffering of pain can be engaged with differently. When we stop fighting it, when we stop wishing it to be anything other than what it was. And that's not to say if there is dis-ease and if there is pain that we don't approach it in a way that is corrective, that is excisional, right? That is therapeutic. But to be able to sit and be with the health in a broader, more expansive way and to notice that you're free to create and collaborate your own way with yourself and with connection to whomever it is that is in front of you in that moment is so powerful. And so as I explored this in clinical medicine, and then as I extrapolated this out into the business world and in the current engagements that I have, in this idea of the way being to kick the one ball 100 times to make focal progress and why perhaps it didn't sit with me was that as I've shared with you, I've never been one thing. I've never done one thing and I don't believe I ever will. Now I do very much believe there are times to apply focus and to move something forward in a very deliberate and distinctive way. And For me, that is relatively infrequent. And even in that time of focus, I do believe those other balls will be nearby. And the part that has been most freeing in recent times is that I feel free to leave something behind when it is time. So while I will never kick one ball, I don't have to kick a hundred forever. I might kick them a few times, right? And one back and forth across the line. You might imagine that. And that does bring me back to my team captain days, right? And gathering all the balls after practice or after a serving set. But what I also love about it is it invites collaboration and connection because to effectively bring forth many, right? Of those, which maybe will convert to ideas or concepts or possibilities it's more effective and efficient to have others with you. And it can be beautiful to pass them, right? And get feedback from the way in which that ball returns into your sphere of influence and awareness. And it also means you may make slower progress, 
right? So absolutely, one ball, 100 kicks goes much farther in a shorter amount of time than 100 balls with 100 kicks, like one each, right? And saying that at times that is okay and being willing to shift the pace with which or at which you make progress because you see that it does work for you to bring multiple ideas forward is okay, right? And giving yourself permission for that and noticing that sometimes, okay, I got to take this one forward. I do a count. I know these are all here. I move it forward and then I circle back. That was also part of my team captainship over the years was perhaps I finished the interval at the front of the pack, but I would always circle back and I would ensure that every person running was able to finish and they had someone with them to do so. And so in this, I encourage you to consider what is your way and not in an ego-driven or mandatory or fixed or publishable way, but simply the way that feels right to you. And noticing that it might look different moment to moment. And then there might be times when you do dig in and put the blinders on and stay very focused and move a singular idea forward faster and farther to completion or to whatever iteration you would like to see. And that's totally okay. There's no right or wrong or otherwise there. Knowing your purpose and your intention and the possibility that you have. Maybe sometimes it is making that sweep, right? In little taps. I coached a lot of U6 soccer, right? Little touches, little touches was the lingo often used. And keep it close and run with it. And maybe moving across the line. And sometimes you say, okay, I can handle 10 right now. And that's what I have to give. And really, you can move 10 quite a far away, right? 10 kicks, 10 balls can go a decent distance. And not being fearful that you've made the wrong choice. If you do get selective and you take half of them forward, you may always wonder, did I pick the right half? What about those others that are behind? Well, they're there, right? And you can circle back or you could ask for a pass, right? That's where the connection and collaboration come into play. And what about when you get to the end? Maybe you go back, right? So maybe you take that one forward and it didn't work out. You didn't score the goal that you imagined. It wasn't the one for you. That's okay. But you've gathered information. You've seen what it's like to take one 100 kicks. And now you know what that feels like, right? What energy that takes, how far that brings you away from the others. And if that feels good to you or If you realize you'd like a closer proximity of a higher concentration of ideas and opportunities and possibilities, and so you choose to keep them close, all of those are totally acceptable, and you get to choose. And the brilliant and the challenging part, which often go hand in hand, are that you also get to decide that you made the right choice. And that's often the harder part. We can get caught up, certainly, in that initial decision which one, how many, how far, how many kicks, when, how do I go back, do I have a team? All of those decisions can catch us out. But the one that really trips us up is looking behind us and wondering if I chose the right one instead of committing to whatever it is that you did choose for a certain amount of time, not forever. You are never 
forever bound to anything. You can make choices, you gather information, and then you make another choice, even just in the next moment. And remembering that things change, just like those patient examples. Things are going to fluctuate. So being flexible and being free to continue to choose and make adjustments, whether they are micro or macro, in your choices is always available to you. And so if you have felt resistance to a way, or like we've talked about in past episodes around knowing of there being one right answer, and again, I don't discredit that there are certainly important specific decisions to be made, right? In the surgical suite, in the prescribing of medications, in recommendations made, absolutely, right? There are times to be very specific and very clear and very ABC or D oriented. And there are many times because of the nuance of humanity and all that goes into health, that there are considerations beyond. Those are often the launch pads. Those are the platforms for decision-making. And it's up to us to continue to evaluate, to notice the response, right? To, again, decide, well, that was the best we could do with the information that we had. It doesn't seem to be going the way we expected. What are we prepared and willing to do, explore, elect now? So engaging with creativity and with confidence and not the confidence that tips toward arrogance that many fear and seek to avoid, but the confidence of this is the right thing right now for me with this patient in this moment. And I'll observe, I'll listen for the impact. I know my intention. I accept that it will emerge as an effect in whatever way it will. And I'm willing to notice and I'm willing to consider and I'm willing to grow and to expand. And the beauty of there not being a way, an only way, a right way, even a best way, is that there's always room to grow. And there is room to be expressive. There is room to be creative. There is room for whatever the person brings in that moment as a need as their unique history and means of engagement. And you are ever prepared for how you can engage with that in a truly therapeutic way that is often mutually beneficial. Because when you are acknowledging the unique, full human experience of another, you're also holding space for it with and for yourself. By saying to someone, I see you just as you are and nothing has to change. You are saying that into the world and you're able to hear it should you choose to. And you're saying, I understand, right? There's a challenge and it can be scary, especially when we are expected as physicians, right? To have the right answer and to be very direct and concrete and clear and directive, with our decisions to say there isn't a right way, right? There's the best we can do with the information we have right now. And there's listening and there's observing and there's the capacity to change course. And that can be a saving grace, right? Because we've seen times when 
we make the appropriate recommendation based on the evidence had and an outcome shifts, right? The impact of it is other than what we expect and we can either decide to stay course or make adjustments according to what's in front of us. And interestingly, neither is right or wrong. And if we look at cases, right, in reviews of outcomes and both can be justifiable, right? Following the evidence-based medicine and protocol and sticking to that is appropriate, right? We do the best we can with the information that we have. Making adjustments outside of it because right, things were going in such a way that it seemed like continuing along the path of the evidence base would cause more harm actually than good. And these can be the exception to the rule, but this is where physicians are called upon to marry science and art, right? To bring in objective and subjective human judgment and to be able to say, right, this is why it isn't a robot-driven profession, to be able to use gestalt and intuition and see the person for who and how they are in that moment and to make decisions. And absolutely, that could be scary. And that is where bravery emerges and to stand behind yourself for making the best decision you could in that moment is so important. And absolutely, right? Especially in the case of challenging outcomes, noticing the impact and how we can learn from that. And it is my true hope that we can remove the punitive nature and instead remember the wisdom of insecurity and the gifts of imperfection and the constant fluctuation of humanity and even a physiology that is in front of us in each and every moment and absolutely creates standards and checks and balances, but in a way that honors not only the humanity and fluctuation of the patient, but of the physician engaging with them and embrace the possibility that there are ways, right? Just as there are humans and engagements and particularly the dynamic when they come together. And for you as an individual, whether that be in medicine, in business, in your relationships, in your engagements otherwise, noticing if it's possible and perhaps probable, exciting, expansive to see what might be your way and not one that you need to write down or dictate to another but one that can simply allow you to embrace everything in every way of being that you are and offer that to the world, be that one person at a time or on a global scale and see what happens when we make and hold space for that for ourselves and for each other and see how the health of all things can actually truly and deeply be nurtured. Thank you for joining me for this and so many of the episodes. Please do follow me on Facebook or Instagram at This Osteopathic Life. If you'd like to explore further discussion, stay tuned for events in the new year that will take us more deeply into the health of all things. This is Dr. Millie Beeky with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.